U.S. Congress writes the copyright laws of the land, and the interpretation is left to the courts. Where it comes to so-called fair use, allowing reuse of copyrighted material without permission, each case stands on its own. Welcome to Copyright Clearance and his podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. Fair use is a potential defense where copyright infringement is charged, and a judge must measure four explicit factors when assessing possible harm. Fair use gets a fair amount of attention in the digital age, and this week is no exception. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly senior writer, joins me from Denver with the details. Welcome back, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. So on Friday last week, just uh, after we recorded the show, we learned the latest news in the so-called Georgia State E-Reserves case. And once again, the university has prevailed in this key copyright suit. So tell us about that and the reaction you've heard. That's right. So last Friday, in a long-awaited decision in a pretty key copyright case, a federal judge for a second time held that Georgia State University's use of digitized course readings, known as e-reserves, is protected by fair use. So in this 220-page remand decision, and the case is called Cambridge University Press versus Patton, uh, it's known widely as the GSU e-reserves case, Judge Arinda Evans found that 41 of 48 alleged infringements considered at trial and reconsidered on remand were in fact protected by fair use. And for a second time, she declared GSU the prevailing party in the case over three publisher plaintiffs. Now, a quick refresher. This case was first filed eight years ago this month with three named plaintiffs, Oxford University Press, Cambridge University Press, and Sage Publications. And they alleged that GSU administrators uh, have copyright policies that systematically encourage faculty to use unlicensed digital copies of readings for their classes as a no-cost alternative to traditionally licensed course readings, uh, things like course packs and such. In 2012, Judge Arinda Evans first ruled against the publishers, finding that Georgia State's uh, copying was protected by fair use in all but five of 48 instances presented at trial. In October of 2014, however, the Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit reversed and sent the case back to Evans with instructions for her to rebalance her four-factor fair use analysis. So this was the decision that we got last week. And in her rebalancing, Evans came to almost the identical conclusion that the copies that GSU made and were using in courses were, in fact, fair use. And in declaring Georgia State the prevailing party again, it's a double whammy for the publishers in this case. The university can once again recover its legal fees from the publishers, and that is no small thing. In 2012, that figure was over $3.2 million, and clearly with all the litigation that's happened in the appeals process, that figure has likely gone up. Well, indeed. Well, this kind of case engenders a lot of strong feelings on all sides. So what are the reactions uh, that you're hearing to this new decision? Well, as would be expected, the publishers are really not happy at all. Uh, in a statement from the AAP, they said they were considering their appeal options. And barring some kind of settlement, uh, I do expect there would be another appeal in this case. And at the very least, there'd be an appeal over the granting of legal fees here. Because, in fact, uh, the publishers did prevail. They are going to get some kind of injunctive relief in this case. So whether or not they're the losing party may be something for appeal as well. Librarians and university administrators, meanwhile, are, are happy with the verdict, but they're not exactly thrilled 
world because in some respects, the fair use determination that Evans used, it's not useful for them. And that's because her fair use determination involved sales figures from the publishers to determine the market harm under the fourth factor of the fair use test. And librarians simply don't have access to those kinds of sales figures. They don't have subpoena power. They can't get these numbers from publishers easily. So how do they make sure they're following Evans's ruling on this if they can't get the information that the court use? But for me, here's the takeaway. When the suit was filed, the publisher said they filed it to get some clarity around how fair use was applied in the academic realm. And as it stands now, eight years and millions of dollars later, things have not gotten any clearer. In fact, I think things have only gotten more unclear. That said, I think the verdict is more damaging to the publishers than it is to the libraries and universities, and not just because they lost and may have to pay legal fees. Uh, the reason I think that is because from where I sit, the publishers have now squandered really the one bit of leverage they ever had when it came to e-reserves, and that was the threat of a lawsuit. By losing this case, we now know a few things. One of them is that there's considerable room for educational fair use, and the other is if you're a publisher and you sue somebody over e-reserves and lose, it's going to cost you money. You're going to have to pay legal fees. Uh, so from the start, I think this case was always pretty risky, and from my perspective, I, I didn't know if it was ever going to provide clarity because very few copyright cases ever really do. But the publishers are really now left with very few, if any, good options going forward, at least not in the legal realm. I think there are, of course, business solutions here. The Google case got all the headlines over the last decade. But for me, this case is far more interesting and more important than the Google case. Uh, the Google case is a special, extraordinary circumstance, right? It involves a huge company and a massive digitization project that's probably never going to be repeated. But this case involves a practice that is common and some would say integral on college campuses. Uh, and in the rulings in this case, the GSU case have been complex. And if the appeals continue, I actually think this case has a shot at making it to the Supreme Court actually being one of the few cases over the last two decades that the Supreme Court would hear. But the question I have is if it gets that far with all the changes in academic publishing from licensed access to open access, is any decision really going to matter? Well, it's a great question. And, you know, the point here about fair use is that they're rather like snowflakes. These cases are each individual, each one unique. And I think you drew some important distinctions between the Google Book case and, and the GSU case. But speaking of the Google Book case, they are attempting to get heard by the Supreme Court, the Authors Guild is, and there's some interesting news there as well. Yeah. So last week we talked about it and I sort of handicapped it like it was going to come. We were going to learn on Monday. We were supposed to learn on Monday what the fate of the Google case was at the Supreme Court. And Monday came and that didn't happen. So this week we learned that the case uh, has indeed been relisted for the next conference. And that may be good news for the Authors Guild because according to SCOTUS blog, cases that are relisted have a much higher rate of being granted a review. Uh, but again, I caution that the court is shorthanded. Uh, and this is a pretty unusual period for them. So so it could well be that the court just didn't get to it at the last conference. We actually don't know. We don't know if the case came up and was discussed or not discussed at the last conference or if it was just moved because of the backlog of cases. But we do know now that it is listed for the next conference, which is on April 15th. So at the risk of sounding uh, like a broken record, we're going to do it all again. On April 18th, that Monday, we should know whether or not the Authors Guild versus Google is going to be taken on by the Supreme Court. All right, then. And finally, you're in Denver with about 7,000 of your closest friends, and that would be the public librarians attending the PLA conference there. How's it going? 
It's lovely. So far, the weather in Denver is beautiful. And uh, Anderson Cooper actually did the opening session at the uh, at the PLA this year, and he was terrific. Um, he started out by basically thanking librarians for the work that they did back in New Orleans in 2006, when they were the first group to come back to New Orleans after Hurricane uh, Katrina and Hurricane Rita. And as you remember, Anderson Cooper really became sort of a household name in New Orleans for his coverage of the hurricane and its aftermath, uh, the flood in New Orleans, and he stayed very close to that community. And he told the librarians that in New Orleans, they have not forgotten what the librarians did for them back in 2006. So that was a really strong emotional note to start with. And then he began talking about his upcoming book, which was published this week, uh, that he wrote with his mother. It's called The Rainbow Comes and Goes, A Mother and Son on Life, Love, and Loss. And he wrote it with his famous mother, Gloria Vanderbilt. And he shared some really great anecdotes. Uh, librarians ate it up. They loved it. It was a really terrific, engaging start to the conversation. Conference. And today I'm walking around and doing some sessions. And the session I'll be doing uh, this afternoon before I fly home is uh, with David Vinja Murray, the brand truth columnist from Forbes, who has been doing a marketing research project with librarians. I talked with David a little bit yesterday, and he's run into some roadblocks with conducting this program. And uh, I'll tell you all about that next week and after I cover his panel today. So be sure to check the PW site for more on the PLA conference and specifically about some of the difficulties that Forbes columnist David Vinja Murray has run into in conducting market research on libraries and publishers. Well, uh, fascinating there because I would think as, uh, as far as it goes with uh, public officials of one kind or another, librarians must have one of the strongest brands around. So we'll look forward to hearing that from you, Andrew, as well as all the other news from the book world. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, thanks for joining us on Beyond the Book. My pleasure as always. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center, a global rights licensing technology and content workflow organization. At CCC, we serve more than 35,000 customers and 15,000 copyright holders worldwide, managing more than 950 million rights from the world's most sought after journals, books, blogs, movies, and more. You can follow Beyond the Book on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and subscribe to the free podcast series on iTunes or at our website, beyondthebook.com. Our engineer and co-producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. I'm Christopher Keneally. Join us again soon on Beyond the Book. 